G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. So when I see poor voters come out in droves for this guy in places like my hometown, where the unemployment rate's been double digits for 20 years, and you're considered a rich kid if your daddy carried the mail, it blows me away. And when the rest of liberal America is asked to explain it, they just go, well, they're a bunch of ignorant bigots. Trump's the king bigot. Who wants kombucha? Well, it ain't that simple, Tristan. That was the voice of U.S. comedian Trey Crowder, six months prior to the U.S. presidential election, highlighting a surge in support for Donald Trump from America's white working class. The shock election of America's 45th president has placed a focus on this white working class, often typified in popular culture as trailer park trash. A media narrative has developed that an angry, white, rural, coal-loving trailer park country provided crucial support for Team Trump in securing 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But as a bunch of sharp comedians and evocative writers question this narrative and challenge common assumptions... A husband and wife economist team has been researching these questions deeply. In 2015, Professor Sir Angus Deaton and Professor Anne Case reported that working class, middle aged white Americans were killing themselves in large numbers. An epidemic of overdoses, suicides, and alcohol related illnesses had caused a surge in deaths since 1999. Unlike every other age group, Unlike every other racial and ethnic group, unlike every other rich country, death rates for middle-aged white Americans have been rising. This research illustrates a sharp, stark social divide in the world's most developed nation. To discuss this research, we're honoured to be joined by Professor Sir Angus Deaton, Nobel Laureate, Senior Scholar in the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, Angus Can I invite you to describe what your research found, the scale of these deaths, and why you were surprised? We originally were working on suicides, and I'd long been interested in suicides and measures of happiness. And I was looking at suicides as a way of perhaps validating or perhaps invalidating measures of happiness. And Anne and I were writing a paper for a conference that looked at that, And we discovered, and this was the first part of the puzzle, we discovered that there was quite an upsurge in suicides in middle age in the United States among white non-Hispanics, both men and women. Um, Women don't kill themselves nearly as often as men, but both were rising in parallel. So we thought it would be good for the presentation of the paper to have a slide showing how this rise in suicide merged into what was happening to other causes of mortality at the same time. So then we went to the CDC data, and that's the Centers for Disease Control where you get all the data from. And we pulled down the numbers on the deaths and the mortality rates of people, white, non-Hispanics, and middle-aged from all causes together. And that was when we thought we must have made a mistake because the numbers were so astonishing that we really couldn't believe what we were seeing. Um, If you look at mortality rate for that age group, middle-aged white non-Hispanics, it's been falling basically for 100 years. Um, from 1900 through to, which is when the data start, 
um, until the end of the century. But around 1998, it stops falling and it's flat or rising um, after that. And first of all, I mean, it's just extraordinary that, that a trend like this, which is so long established, and which is so much the foundation of social progress that mortality rates are going down, should suddenly have stopped going down. So that was that was a major puzzle and surprise by itself. But also we thought it couldn't be right because if it had happened, other people would have noticed it, including all the government statisticians and other people who were working on this data. But it turned out it was there and we were right. Um, and, you know, so that was the first surprise was just discovering this rise in mortality, which is really basically unprecedented. So what is the scale we're talking about? In 2015, there's about um, 52,000 people who died from drug overdoses. That's from legal and illegal drugs in the United States. Um, but there's then a slightly smaller number who died by killing themselves and a similar number who died from alcoholic liver disease. So you're talking about maybe 120,000 people. So what causes these deaths? What is the driving motivation that pushes people to these uh, desperate measures? Our belief is that it's despair and it's, you know, living this life that's sort of come apart. You know, it's not better than your parents. Your marriage is not any good anymore. Um, you don't really know your kids. There's been a huge upsurge in pain in spite of all of this treatment. And so I think a lot more people are in pain or at least conscious being pain. But these things um, seem to us then and they seem to us now to be all something that you could sensibly regard as suicides in one form or another. Um, the people are killing themselves very rapidly um, or they're killing themselves more slowly. So alcoholic liver disease, obviously, you've got to go at it for a while before your liver is shot. Um, whereas if you pick up a gun or you swallow some pills, you could go very quickly. And the drugs are accidental. They're not suicides. I mean, the, the coroner, whoever has decided that this was an accidental death. So the question is, why are they taking the drugs in the first place? And of course, there's the whole story of the opioid epidemic and why that happened and how it relates with heroin and illegal drugs. And perhaps we could, we could pursue that because you've uh, written very powerfully about the opioid and prescription painkillers and their effect and in particular, the role of OxyContin uh, and other prescription drugs. Can you say a little about how that came into the picture? Yeah, well, these opioids started out um, being used more heavily around 1990. And then OxyContin was approved, uh, I think, 1997. Um, OxyContin is a very popular one of the opioids. I've often described it as heroin with an official label on it. So it's, some people say it's even more effective at binding to the receptors in the brain than heroin is. So you don't want to think of it as a weak form of heroin. You might want to think of it as a strong form of heroin. And then there are drugs now like fentanyl, which has become very important. They're supposed to be about 100 times more powerful than heroin. Um, the prescription drug thing is both interesting and horrifying. There's a long and very interesting issue of pain in the United States and in other rich countries, um, sort of oscillating between 
a treatment which says, you know, buck up and the pain will go away, go for a long walk. Um, or, you know, this is a, a, a symptom that really needs to be treated of some sort of disease. So there's been a lot of pressure around the time that the opioids became available to classify pain as a disease. It's often called the fifth vital sign that doctors are supposed to ask you. When you go in there, you know, are you breathing? What's your blood pressure, et cetera? Mm -hmm. And they also ask you pain. And you do indeed often see in doctor's offices in the US at least big pain charts, which, you know, say here's zero, you have no pain at all. And there's a smiley face and then, you know, there's a grimace, horrible grimacing demon at the other end, <laughs> where it's a 10. So doctors were asking people and they were treating pain. And certainly the pharma companies pushed very hard for those painkillers to be prescribed. And the FDA in 1997 or 8 approved OxyContin, which became one of the very popular one of these drugs. The problem with it, it was, it was always known there was a potential for addiction because this is basically, think of it like heroin. And somehow the FDA and the docs thought that they could tell in advance who had addictive personalities and who didn't. So they were going to avoid addiction by only giving it to people who were not at risk of addiction, which I don't think they really know how to do. Um, it's probably true that if people are dying of terminal cancer, for instance, prescribing is fine. Um, but otherwise, I don't think they really know. And then the other part of that is that once you're addicted, it's incredibly hard to get unaddicted. So, you know, some people will challenge that. But I don't think anyone who's worked in the field will argue that it's easy to unaddict someone, whether it's from alcohol or drugs or whatever. And, you know, these things are being handed out by the bottleful by dentists, for yeah. example. You have a tooth out and then you go home with a hundred of these. Um, and if you resist this temptation to sell them on the open market, which there's a big open market in these things, legal market. Um, you can take these and you can find yourself seriously addicted, even if you know the risks. And I so say you've written very powerfully about a rent-seeking by those in the production chain and those who are selling these, and you've just mentioned the, the range of players. Have we set up an economy where uh, these sorts of prescription painkillers become sort of integral to a whole set of industries? You know, until the next administration, there were not very many lobbyists in Washington and, you know, the trade associations were mostly in New York. And so this organized lobbying on behalf of business and sort of writing laws and having congressmen read the scripts is relatively new. Very aggressive selling campaign um, by the pharmaceutical firms to physicians. And, you know, the pain is the fifth vital sign is very much um, a part of that. And we haven't done as much work in other countries as we intend to. But I know, for instance, in Britain, where they're worried about it, opioids are, tend to be prescribed in hospitals. So, you know, if you have a hip replaced, for example, um, you know, when you wake up from surgery and the anesthetic wears off, they'll give you OxyContin or something to contain the pain for a couple of days. But you're in bed in the hospital and they're watching you and, you know, they can take this away from you before anything really bad begins to happen. And that seems to be true within Europe. I, I've forgotten the percentage, but an astonishing amount. It's like 90% of all the world's supplies consumed in the United States. Indeed, uh, there's a calculation that your partner and case did that said there's enough prescriptions written for heavy-duty painkillers in America to feed every adult in America around the clock for a month. 
just following up on that, uh, she was also quoted as saying there's something rotten going on even before OxyContin. People want to feed the beast of despair. They may do that with drugs. They may do that with alcohol. They may do it with food. So what role alcohol and obesity and other forms of addiction in the pattern of white male deaths that you're describing in America? When you quote her, I think you should talk to her. She's so much more eloquent than I am about this. <laughs> we'll try um, to do that. Yeah. Well, um, we're not necessarily talking about addiction. You could drink a lot of alcohol and get alcoholic liver disease without being addicted. And also suicide is certainly connected with addiction. Um, but you can decide to kill yourself without being addicted to anything. And also addiction to opioids doesn't necessarily kill you. Um, what seems to happen is that people break the habit. They go cold turkey. They get clean. Um, they're sober, as it were. And then when they've been taking it, you have to keep increasing the dose to have the same effect on the pain. So by the time you quit, your dose is much heavier than mm. it was but, you know, when you started. Yeah. So if you quit and you're off for a month and then you relapse and you take the dose you were taking on the day you quit, that's when you die right. um, because your body doesn't have the tolerance of that anymore. Now, what Anne was talking about is this sense that we think the opioids were what she calls an accelerant. Um, it was like adding fuel to the flames and that there was something deeply wrong in the state of Denmark before this started happening. And this just made it so much worse. And, you know, you can think of suicides and alcohol as, you know, an escape from unhappiness and escape from despair. We don't really know about obesity, but obesity would be another part of that story. You know, you just eat yourself um, to being sick. And in the U.S., and I, I was just looking before I talked to you at the Australian numbers, but in the U.S., um, the decline in heart disease mortality, which has driven a lot of the life expectancy improvement over the last 40 years, um, has slowed down and actually stopped. So it's going up. Um, and in Australia, it's went down and now it's slowing down. Still, It's still decreasing, but it's decreasing at a lower rate than it was. So, you know, you may have some of the same thing, too. We don't know that this is obesity, but it's plausible. So you mentioned earlier that it's not the same rate of suicides or mortality between men and women from these causes. But can you say a little about the difference between outcomes for men and women in American white working class families? Well, we've been up and down on this several times, and I have a view, but let me tell you the other view, too. So the, the, the baseline for all of these things is that men do more of it than women do. Mm -hmm. So I think suicides for women are about a fifth of suicides for men. But if you look at what's happened since, you know, all this started in the late 90s, and you look at all these things, they've gone up like tram lines for men and women. But then people say, well, but the percentage increase for women has been much larger than for men. That seems to be the wrong way of thinking about it. It's sort of like if someone gives you a dollar and me a dollar, then they say they actually gave more to you because you had less money to start with. Well, yes. <laughs> that's not what we're really talking about here. We're talking about the increase. And so the increase, you know, has been, we think, you know, parallel tram lines. And pursuing that a bit further, the comparison between the death rates for, say, white, Hispanic and African-Americans, are there noticeable differences? 
you have very noticeable differences. So this is one of the puzzles. So, you know, what we've been talking about is happening for white, non-Hispanics, men and women in the United States. It's not happening for Hispanics. Um, if you look at Hispanics death rates, they look like British death rates or Australian death rates or something. They just look like what's happening elsewhere. So they're just fine. Um, if you look at African-American death rates, they're still higher than white non-Hispanic death rates. And, you know, historically, that's been true for a very long time. And it's one of the things that people rightly worry enormously about. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the many characteristics in which African-Americans do worse than whites. But the mortality rate for African-Americans has been falling more rapidly than than even Hispanics. And so they're closing in on whites. Right. And, and actually, we, we have a graph which some people don't like very much. But, you know, it's always been the case that African-Americans have been regarded as, you know, if you want a social group that's discriminated against, that's doing really badly, they're the ones. But if you take white non-Hispanics without a university degree, and they're now doing worse on mortality than all blacks, which is, if you like, not a fair comparison. But it was all blacks that were always used as the terrible group. And now the terrible group is these whites without a university degree. It's a pretty appalling set of outcomes across every criteria. And one of the things you linked them to is education outcomes. You've said that America is not a great place for people who only have a high school degree. These negative outcomes, these mortality rates, are doing much, much worse among people who do not have a four-year BA from those who do have a university degree. And that seems to be the dividing line. Even a, some people who have some college are more like the people who have none than the people who actually have a degree. The rest of us who have college degrees are not doing great. Um, you know, we're doing about the same as the European average. But the people who are really suffering are these people without a university degree. How significant is this in a public policy sense? From your discussion in Australia, um, there's real concern as to whether you're next. Yeah. And that's one of the, you know, what used to be a $64,000 question. I guess it's a $64 billion question now. There's no lack of candidates for horrible things happening to people who don't have a university degree. Well, of course, it's in all the rich countries of the world. You know, globalization and technical change is making life very hard for people you know, you could think of someone who got a high school degree, graduated in 1970, you know, went to work for General Motors, or as someone said the other day, went to work for Generous Motors. You know, they got a yeah. really pretty good salary. They got an increase every year. They belong to the unions. The union may not have been the most, the you know, most pleasant bunch of guys in the world, but they gave some real political power to the working class. And job security. Uh, yeah. And job security and pay rises year after year. Um, So these people could hope for a real middle-class life. And, you know, that has sort of gone. Jobs don't last this long. They're not as good jobs. They often don't have health insurance. The commitment by both the employee and the employer to these jobs has diminished. Um, People don't seem to accumulate the same amount of skill on the job as they used to do. Um, and of course, I, I, it's not a black and white thing. It's just that all these good things seem to be 
having diminished over time. And they're linked up with social outcomes, which I think we think are the key, which is, you know, because of social changes, what Charles Murray would call a loss of virtue, um, you know, people live with their girlfriends instead of getting married with them. They have children out of wedlock on a large scale. So now in the US, the average white mom has had at least one child out of wedlock, you know, which just Mm. did not used to be the case. And so in the US and unlike Europe, and I don't know the Australian situation, these cohabitations as they call them, um, don't last nearly as long as marriages last. So you might move in with your girlfriend, you have a kid, she finds someone who's a little better on the ladder than you are, kicks you out as another guy, kicks him out. Um, you get these kids who are 11 years old and they've had three dads, dads in heavy quotes. Yep. Um, and, you know, that's not a way to bring up a child. And then you get to age 50, you've just lost the last in a series of short-term, not very good jobs. Um, you, you've got three kids, but you never see them because they're living with other guys. And you can see how in a world like that. Um, despair sets in. Yeah. Mm. Despair sets in. So that's yeah. the sort of story we've been telling it to ourselves. And it, it's a very preliminary sort of story. It matches up with what the sociologists and other people are saying. But, you know, we've got five years' work ahead of us. In 1931, um, the historian James Truslow defined or described the American dream as a, a dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. But that's not the America you're describing. It's America that a lot of people seem to believe still exists, but the data don't really support it very well. If you were born when I was born, 1945, you know, by the time you were 30, I was not born in the U.S., but if I'd been born in in memory, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, from which half my relatives went to Australia because we were so poor. But anyway, I read a, no, a, I read an address you gave to the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which was just yeah. fabulous. Remembering your time there, yeah. So to go back to the American cohort born in 1945, by the time they were 30, um, something like 90 percent of them were better off than their parents had been when they were 30. And then if you go, the cohort was born 20 years later in 1965 or 1970, um, only about 60% of them were better off than their parents. And that's just because economic growth sort of stopped. Or it didn't stop, but it really slowed down. The trouble, of course, with that story is that's happening elsewhere too, and they're not all killing themselves. Since the election of Donald Trump, uh, as you say, there's been a big public conversation about the role of America's white working class and things that are afflicting them. And there are clear narratives being developed to explain the election of the US president and narratives that uh, new writers, including many from working class communities, are challenging. Let's listen to one. Sarah Schmarsch is a writer with Harper's Online, The New Yorker and others. And this is Sarah speaking recently on Harvard's Shorenstein Center podcast about the narrative being used to explain the shock election of Donald Trump. The Trump train was a white phenomenon, not a poor white phenomenon. At every economic level, um, white people, including just 
almost by the same margin, college-educated white people came out for the for Trump at the same rate. I don't see any news stories or media narratives examining the great mystery of why uh, middle-class suburban white men with golf clubs in tidy garages voted for him. But there are a lot of obsessive <laughs> reports going on about why coal country did. You know what I mean? Angus, misconceptions around America's white working class seem to be at large. Can you describe the experience you and Anne have had with conducting your research and your interaction with these communities that you are studying and reporting on? You know, what is Sarah yep. said is, is Sarah quite Trump, interesting. Yeah. If you look at the white non-Hispanics without a university degree and compare them with blacks non-Hispanics without a university degree, the black non-Hispanics, I think about 28% of them are poor, meaning they're below the poverty line. Um, about 7% of the white non-Hispanics without a college degree are below the poverty line. So one of the things that comes through from the ethnographic research very clearly, and it's sort of consistent with what she said, but I'm not sure about the college educated, is that um, there's a lot of white people who are incredibly resentful of the welfare benefits they see being handed out to people who they don't think deserve them. And you could argue that it's racism in disguise, but you could argue you know, it's just they don't like handouts and they don't like them to be given to white people either. And I'd like to take you to that point about welfare benefits and anger at that, um, because presumably one of the arguments that could be pursued is that Australia and Europe have quite good social safety networks, uh, and that is possibly why we are not seeing the outcomes in these countries to the same extent as you're describing. America's social safety network is relatively recent. It's certainly tenuous in the current political climate, and it's opposed by many of those who might be the beneficiaries. Is this a sort of fundamental cultural difference, or how do we explain the failure, in a sense, to produce long-term policies that ensure that not so many people end up in difficult circumstances? I wish I knew the answer to that. I mean, I mean, I, I think it's a leading hypothesis that the superior welfare states in these other rich countries stopped this from happening in a way that it did happen in America. But there's the question that doesn't take us all that far because why don't Americans have this welfare state? Why don't they want it? Um, one of the arguments often comes back to race that most of the other Western countries were much more racially homogeneous, at least at the time that they mm -hmm. instituted those welfare policies. And in America, those welfare policies perhaps did not develop um, because it was seen as transfers um, from whites to blacks. The other issue that I think has been very important is this huge mistrust of government in the United States. And so many Americans believe that the capitalist system is inherently fair, which to me is an odd belief, having grown up in, in Britain. Yeah. But there's the sense that it's an anonymous market that produces these outcomes, and whereas they would contrast that with what the government does, which they see as arbitrary and unfair. So the government's always doing bad things to some people and bringing some other people forward like a sort of drunken god somehow that's making arbitrary distinctions between people that people see as massively unfair. And they don't see the capitalist system as being unfair. And that's one of the reasons I've been focusing a lot on rent-seeking recently, because, you know, that sort of bridges that gap. 
I mean, the government is responsible for rent-seeking. I mean, it makes it happen. It's the target of it, too, of course. Yeah. Um, and, and so you could imagine someone on the left and someone on the right hating rent-seeking just about as much as one another. And in a recent speech, you stated that one would be better off living below the World Bank's extreme poverty line in a country like Bangladesh than in the United States. And uh, there are figures showing life expectancy in at least one US county is now less than Sudan. And I'm just fascinated, and as a, an outsider who's come to America, how Americans explain to themselves these outcomes. You know, by saying those things about Bangladesh, I made a lot of people very upset, and not everybody agrees with the analogy. And though it's also true that that calculation makes no allowance for the fact that, you know, even if after adjusting for prices, you might be able to live on $2 a day in India. Um, but in India, they don't have to buy any housing. They don't have to pay for transport. They don't have to pay for, you know, this, uh, yeah. healthcare. There's just a lot of, so it might be that you should be using $4 a day in Australia or in the U.S. or something, in which case they'd be even more. But there is this very long tail of really poor people in the U.S. And I don't know how they justify it. Um, you know, if you're on the right, if you read Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman thought that, you know, poverty was created by governments trying to help it. In your view, what sort of policy responses make sense given the circumstances you're describing? And are you seeing any signs that people are not just talking about the problem, but have some ideas about how to respond? Well, there are people with ideas for sure. I'm not sure we have an operating government right now in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and um, so the question is to, you know, it's very, very hard to predict um, what's going to happen. We have been talking to some of the people in the Senate who are writing or enhanced to some of the people in the Senate who are trying to write the health care bill. But here's one policy which people I don't think usually associate with in this way. Um, and I think this could happen, not deliberately, but almost by accident. Um, which is we spend about $3 trillion a year in the United States on health care. It's about 18% of GDP. And the next most expensive country spends about 12%. So a third of that's 12 versus 18, 6% is the third. So we could save a trillion dollars a year if we went to the second most expensive way of delivering health care. Okay. <laughs> And remember, our healthcare is, you know, if you think of the opioids, the, the, the family that owns OxyContin is a family health firm, according to the Los Angeles Times, had made 30-something billion dollars out of it. So here, this system is making these people incredibly rich, and it's killing people, and life expectancy is going down. So we have an incredibly expensive healthcare system that's delivering lousy healthcare. Outcomes. So if you take that trillion dollars and divide it by the number of families in the United States, you get about $8,000 per family per year. All right. So if we could get that back, this would stop the steady deterioration in earnings that's been happening since 1970. And people don't understand that employee ba employer based healthcare system someone has to pay for it, and a lot of it comes out of wages. Um, and so that's been a major factor in holding down wages in the United States. The businesses complain about it holding down profits, but most of the studies show that it comes out of wages. 
Um, and so if we went to single-payer healthcare system, not only you know, would we have as good or perhaps better health, but the major bit about it is it would stop this vicious decline in earnings at the bottom of the income distribution. Um, and I think that would do a lot. It's it's a fascinating concept given Congress's uh, desire to turn back even the Obama health care initiatives. However, you'd have to be an optimist, wouldn't you? But I think what might happen is it's, there's a huge amount of uncertainty out there right now. And so one of the things they could do is screw up so badly that there'd be a huge political backlash, which would lead to something like this. I mean, that's how it might happen. So as the rest of the world uh, looks to American experience, and we, we do, we follow it closely, and uh, American models of economic development are powerful around the planet, what lessons should we draw from the American experience that you're describing? Well, I think you want to be pretty careful about opioids, for a And actually, um, I was looking at this before. I talked to you, but in one of our papers, we show that Australia is one of these places where the same classification that we call deaths of despair Mm -hmm. um, have actually not been doing so very well. And you can see that Australia and I think Scotland, though we've been meaning to um, go back and look at Scotland, um, you know, has a problem. And I don't know exactly what that problem is. And, you know, if you put it on the same graph as what's been happening in America, there's sort of nothing there. But, you know, as you say, these health trends in America have a habit of popping up in other countries you know, five or 10 years later. So I think one of the policy prescriptions for other countries is, you know, look what happened and be very, very careful of those things. It's been a great pleasure speaking to Professor Sir Angus Deaton, the Nobel Laureate and Senior Scholar at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. You can hear how important this research is. Angus, thank you for taking time to talk to the audience here today on The Policy Shop. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Policy Shop would like to thank the liberal redneck, Trey Crowder, author and journalist Sarah Smarsh, and Harvard's Shorenstein Centre podcast. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasy, with research by Paul Gray and Ruby Schwartz. Audio engineering is by Gavin Nabar. Licensed under Creative Commons, copyright, the University of Melbourne, 2017.